The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis, I'm Louis Bertel. Bertel. Oh, no. oh, I'm Louis Bertel. Today I'm Louis Bertel. Let me just say, the last week this woman roasted me so hard. <laughs> Both my parents asked, asked me if I was okay. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. But you they started with the so lighting on my face, which I tried to rectify this week. And by the way, it looks terrible. Just FYI. And the then ring light. you look like Casper, right? Which, which, <laughs> by the way, alone. I've got news for you. Okay. Not, not the first time I've heard that insult. Not the first time. Okay. You uh, look like later days Michael Jackson. Wow. Oh, no. You, I always say my favorite Michael Jackson era is Dangerous Era when he looked, he and Janine Garofalo like passed through the same prism. Like they were the <laughs> yeah. same person for a split second. Yeah, the same hairstylist, same makeup stylist. Very sure of that. Very sure right. of that. But I'm also Aida Osman. Hello. Oh, yeah. She's I- Aida Osman. <laughs> no, see, if I said I was Aida Osman, that probably wouldn't have gone so well for me. I know, I, I know. Feel. I, yeah. had, to, mm, I yeah. had to bail you out. I had to bail you out. <laughs> so... Lewis got a ring light this week and uh, still didn't clean that closet. No. There's just things lying around in there. There's like a painting. It looks like and a by construction the way, site. By the way, there's a painting. Haven't looked at it once. No idea what's on the painting. What, Girl. What, what my coworkers are seeing on the painting right now, there's like a little bit of the frame uh, in, mm. in my Zoom border. They now know more about it than I do. I have no idea. Well, from what this lighting is doing to you, I, I'm guessing it's not a portrait of you. No. Dorian Gray. That, Damn, no, absolutely. no, you know what? <laughs> we got to break the narrative. Lewis, I'm sorry. We're done. We're done. Rose no, <laughs> no, no, because because also for our, just so people know, for our official photos, he does take a photo in his living room. I was, we yeah, were people were asking. Of, we were accused of lying. <laughs> yeah, because you restaged in the 11th hour, but before right. that. Yeah, it was this. This the people need to know. The people need to know. Movements Guys, were made. If you saw this closet, you would understand that a charade was necessary. That I would have to go out into the living room and make something presentable for you, so that Billy Porter doesn't get scared when the picture comes out later and realizes I I live like a psycho in here. <laughs> also, I do want to issue a addendum quickly okay uh you know we you we talked about miss annie Leibovitz. oh yes. oh yeah, yeah i yeah. wanted to mention that we just think that her photography has deteriorated <laughs> I, <laughs> I find her work uh, less could, important than it yes. used to be mm-hmm. yes yes uh because she has done photographs of black celebrities that i absolutely love yeah um, in the past but in this one you know so she decided to make an athlete look like a beast <laughs> was this an afterthought or what happened? I saw some older photos that Annie had taken before, you know, of like Rihanna, of like a Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought those were lovely. Uh, this particular one, however, was <laughs> not lovely. So that's that on that. There you go, Annie. Annie, hope you're okay. Speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that alien ant farm slash Michael Jackson shout out. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have a exciting episode today. We will be joined by 
our friends Aminal Tussauds and Anne Friedman to discuss their new book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Not a lot of closeness happening between friends lately. Mm-mm. Observant, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. That is observant humor, okay? Um, Observational comedy. Very Jerry Seinfeld today. I say, okay? well, Elaine Boozler in the house, yeah. She, you, you, <laughs> you know about the, the difference between men and women. Yeah. <laughs> What's the deal with the pandemic looking at? <laughs> <laughs> then we're also going to get into a internet scuffle between Tiana Taylor and Mickey Blanco that somehow also involves Kanye West. Because he has laced himself into every bit of pop culture and we have no choice but to fucking talk about this man every single week. Truly. I'm sick of him. Truly. I, at one point, we even had a moratorium on discussing Kanye. Mm. Like back in the days of 2018. Okay, this is pre-Aida days. Yes. And then the dark ages, <laughs> as I call them. Uh, and then Aww. this nigga decided to run for president. Oh, yeah. We really don't have a choice. And, and not just that, but I, I remember when he started slowly seeping back into the conversation because Kim was Elle Woodsing up to the White House mm-hmm. in her um, yeah. business pantsuits, uh, <laughs> trying to release prisoners, right? <laughs> all, like, all three. <laughs> and, and, yes. <laughs> all three people she Shawshanked? Good Lord. So we, by that nature, had to like start talking about him again. Um, and this isn't even going to be a conversation about his silly presidency notions it's <laughs> about tiana and mickey and she just happens to be on his label but we will get mm-hmm. to that when we get to it so we'll be right back all right everybody it's a whole new week what have we been consuming in the culture this week i did my famous thing which is not consuming new stuff which, by the way, actually does get taxing after a while. Like, at the beginning of the pandemic, I would just watch old movies. And then after a while, you'd be like, well, I do want to pretend like 2020 is occurring in some way. Like, I don't just want to feel like a film historian right now. But I'm back to myself. Don't worry. I, I've come full circle and decided the past is the best. Why not even pretend that 1990 exists? <laughs> 1995. Right. See? 2001. Uh, as soon as I knew what you were going to talk about this week, I texted Aida and I was like, Luke's about to talk about some old bitches again on the podcast. Got it. Right. And I was like, bro, the amount of things I Google for this white man so I can understand what you're talking about. This, you peel off your time traveler suit and be a human for a second. Please. Wow. Please. I have to say, I'm, I'm proud of this particular pain. Unfortunately, I will be going full speed ahead. Okay, great. Um, I happened to watch two movies, movies in a row, just randomly like saw them on Amazon Prime. Uh, which are Tumbleweeds, which is a movie from the late 90s with Janet McTeer, which is basically the quintessential indie movie where it's a mom and her daughter just like making it together and they don't need a man. Like, it's a very familiar type of movie. Good. And then I watched In America, which is uh, a movie with uh, Samantha Morton and Patty Considine and uh, Jaiman Hansu is in it too. And randomly, I didn't realize this at the time, both of these movies have unbelievable performances by kids in them, which is very unusual to me. I hate being won over by a kid. I don't think kids should have charisma. That feels inhuman to me. (laughs) In 
Tumbleweeds, the kid is, are you ready, Aida, Kimberly J. Brown from Halloween Town? You would not believe this girl has this performance in her. It is a shockingly amazing performance where she's like, precocious is the correct word, but she also is just, her emotions are believably on the verge of adolescence. I can't explain it. It's the age she is and the ability she brings. I can't think of anybody who's like, like I wouldn't compare Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon, which is like the ultimate kid performance of all time to this performance. And I was just thinking, what kid performances do we actually like and don't annoy us? Like, cause I would even say most good kid performances have an annoying quality to them. Well, I'm not Miss Hannigan, so I actually <laughs> do like children, Lewis. <laughs> you have famously discussed finding children performances annoying, and I only find them annoying in films where they're not central to the plot. You know, films where they're perhaps two parents who are going through like a divorce or um, some other entanglement, and the child is just there as a plot device. Same marriage nuisance. story. Same like, marriage, marriage story. story. Oh, <laughs> oh, right. Weirdly, I didn't even think of that movie when we were talking Useless. about this. You're right. There is a you know? that that child performance is a problem. Yeah, but that's a particular genre, right? You know, where like the, the it doesn't matter where the child is a good actor. It just matters for them being annoying in certain scenes, mm-hmm. so that you can get a reaction from the actor or actress. Yeah, a plot device of a child. Fuck that. Yes, <laughs> but I mean Natalie Portman um, in Leon. Yes. Professionnel. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Her again? debut. Kirsten Dunst, <laughs> Interview with a Vampire. Sure. Okay. Uh, Christian Bale, uh, Empire of the Sun. Also, yes. this is, you're, you're pointing out people who actually, they were propelled onto functional careers. It's very Yeah. Exciting. Well, here's one yeah. who didn't. Well, I mean, well, that's rude of me, but Dakota Fanning. I am Sam. Dakota Fanning was one of my favorite child actresses at a young age, and also in Uptown mm-hmm. Girls with the late, great Brittany Murphy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. And then more, mm-hmm. most recently, I've really enjoyed a- the A24 kids, so Brooklyn Prince in The Florida Project. Amazing mm. performance. I love, my favorite thing about a child performance is gives me something that a Marseille Martin would give me, is that mm-hmm. I see that talent, undeniable talent. Your age doesn't matter. You're going to go on to have an amazing career. Marseille had that. Haley Joel Osment, I thought he had that. But uh, maybe that dissipated. And I I think those are my favorite. Oh, and then Sonny Suljic in mid-90s is a very particular kid role. Mm. This like indie alternative, still sweet and naturalistic. That I appreciate. I never saw mid-90s. Quivenzene. Oh, Quivenzene. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm. Um, Journey Smollett. Yes. In, in East Bayou. Bayou. Yes, bitch. I love that performance. She did what needed to be done. I know. She's so good. And even Megan Good was really good in that movie, too. The yeah. curse, the bitch yeah. of it all. The rate at which Eve's Bayou comes up on this podcast, by the way, that should be in our iTunes reviews more. We, really we do a really should. good job at that. So, okay. It's just a beautiful film. Acknowledge that, everybody. Eve's Bayou is a part of the Keep It Drinking game. I'm sure the um, <laughs> Twitter account, which I keep meaning to shout out and forgetting, at Keep It Stands, which you should all follow because they... Um, they catalog all our references, yeah. Yeah, they, they do, do dramaturgy for our episodes and list every reference that we make. The links. Uh, I'm is sure there. they could draft a drinking game for the things that we mention. In fact, all at the Keep time It Stands, that's your little assignment. We love you. Yeah. Make it a game. <laughs> also, Jodie Foster. Ooh. Several of those. By the way, Jodie Foster in the 70s was in several 
very weird movies. If you ever see a movie called The Little Girl Who Lived Down the Lane, it's about a woman or a girl who ends up through strange circumstances living by herself in a house. And she is basically harassed by a pedophile played by Martin Sheen. And he's never played another role like that before or since. And I don't know who thought of this movie, but it is so harebrained and spooky just check it out and then tell me about it because I can't wrap my head around what was going on. And by the way, there's a nude scene in it where Ugh. Jodie Foster's sister is her nude stunt double, which is very whack. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. I feel like the first time I really came into understanding of who Jodie was was Silence of the Lambs, sure. obviously, as a kid. Uh, but having discovered her older work, it, it's just amazing that she was so mesmerizing and sort of lived in her characters so early on. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen Scorsese talk about her um, working with her on Taxi Driver. and um, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Also in yeah. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, she's excellent in both of those, even though her character in Alice doesn't live here anymore is so fucking annoying. <laughs> but like, that's, she's, she's <laughs> impish. Yeah, yeah. Like that's yeah. sort of the point. So fu- like, like she's like a shoplifter and uh, causing trouble. And I remember, I do love Scorsese. Um, Girl, we know. But, but <laughs> I, well, the the internet doesn't. Film Twitter don't it, know because I because because I, I made a joke one time when he had that uh, when he had those Marvel comments. Anyway, I do love him. But I remember at one point I read an interview with him where he said that he didn't love the final cut of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore because. The it should have been like three hours long, and he feels that the characters are two dimensional in the version that was released. And I'm like, baby, <laughs> why? Yeah, no one's. Craving- why does every movie need to be three hours for you? That movie is perfect as it is. If I go on Amazon Prime and the runtime says 181 minutes, guess where I'm walking? Out the door into the pandemic. That's where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> Risk it all. <laughs> Yes. Oh, 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 one more. Mara Wilson, Matilda. Oh, sure. How done. That's mm. the easy answer, I feel like. But she's the end all be all of my favorite child performance. Yeah. And now she has an ongoing Twitter performance that you can catch at any hour. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a nice person. I've Culture. met her once in Silver Lake. Seems nice. She's lovely. I know her. <laughs> yeah. I have been, I mean, I feel like, okay, good TV is still coming out, but I think I'm starting to feel the lull that is caused by the pandemic of production because just Mm -hmm. I'm struggling to find TV shows that I give a fuck about. And now that I finished I May Destroy You, which was one of the best TV shows I've ever seen, the best season finales I've ever seen. Thank you for that young link, Ira. And uh, (laughs) I've been been listening to a lot of alternative rap music that's been coming out. The Price of Tea in China by Boldy James and The Alchemist is an amazing album. And then also Odyssey just released a new project called Odd Cure, who I'm in love with Odyssey because Odyssey is a rapper who's Sudanese and from the DMV. It just speaks to so much of like, my father lived in the DMV and I would visit him a lot in the summer. So I feel like very strong connections to Silver Spring and Maryland and PG County and those areas. Listening to him have a track that's a skit at the beginning about calling his Baba, which is what Arabic, Sudanese, Muslim kids call their father. It was just so, so enticing and like it it, it speaks to me so i really really love that um yeah i I said just music 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 beyonce's visual album about to drop i think a week 
for Black is King. So, girls, get your djembe, get your kente. I hope it's a visual album. It is, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. She hasn't really explained what it is going to be exactly. You're right. I think I'm just assuming. It's so uncomfortable to have this much time to anticipate a Beyonce project. Again, well, I will say, when before Lemonade came out, didn't it just like appear on the HBO like channel listings a week beforehand or something? Yes, they yeah, announced the week thing. before that something was coming to HBO, but we had no idea what. Yeah. I am weirdly pessimistic that we know about it this far in advance, but maybe that's just the Disney Plus game, and sh- I, that shouldn't reflect on what Beyonce is doing in any way. Anyway, no, we'll talk about it next week probably. <laughs> when it comes out. But yeah, just simply waiting. What's weird is that um, I heard Lynn manuel Miranda is also in Black is King. Oh. Is that true? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Disney Plus was like, we need a bit of Hamilton in everything. They spliced him into um, Smart House and Luck of the Irish, too. <laughs> Ooh, that makes me want to go back and watch Luck of the Irish. Phil of the Future, put it on. Ryan Merriman. Ryan Merriman in Luck of the Irish was actually very cute to me. Yeah. I can't fight that. Well, I think we've talked about this before, but Wizards of Waverly Place, the funny thing is when they shout spells on that show, they're always like pop cultural inside references. Like one time Octavia yeah. Spencer was on and screamed Scritty Politty. Like it's super oh, funny. Yeah. See, that went over my head as a child. Now I have to double back and watch fucking Wizards of Waverly Place. <laughs> That's what's gonna uh, I've, to been meaning to, I've been meaning to do a rewatch because I w- have long posited that Selena Gomez is a fantastic comedic actress uh, with great comedic timing, and that is what she should be doing. And that's what she should have stayed doing. <laughs> I am somewhat ashamed to bring this up. I, I'm sure it's come up on the podcast before, but Selena Gomez was in a weird Woody Allen movie with Timothy Chalamet called A Rainy Day in New York. And it's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. among Woody Allen movies, it is shockingly bad. I mean, he has movies that I think are boring. You watched that movie? It was on a plane, and I think that's the only place you can see it, if I'm not mistaken. It's like it came out like in 2017 or something. That's the only but place. I remember you can see it. we talked about it getting canceled on right, this show. Right. Oh, wow. And I know Elle Fanning was in that. Little, another Fanning yes, appearance. Very good. Yes, correct. She yeah. is given nothing to do, and Selena is funny in a deadpan way too. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that kind of humor from her. Weirdly, mm-hmm. but don't watch it. Why am I encouraging this behavior? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> watch it on a plane. Her character on Wizards is like Alex is pretty much a bitch and sort of deadpan, and that is basically the perfect character for her. Mm-hmm. So. I love her acting. <laughs> and that's Let's it. Let's see more of it. Let's get a Monte Carlo too. Get out the booth, girl. Get out the booth <laughs> yeah. and get in the studio. Yeah. Drop the, pass the mic. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag pass the mic. By the way, if you're doing a top 10 of the 2000s and 2010s music, Love You Like a Love Song, wouldn't be mad at you if you threw it on there. Louis. Yeah. <laughs> now, Aida, Aida just the looked at me face. like... The way she looked at me was as if I had said my favorite president was Trump or whatever, <laughs> something like that. It was that level. I yeah. think it's tantamount. I think it's the same shit. Yeah. When we know that the real jam from Selena Gomez is um, Slow Down. Sing that one real quick. How does that one go? You know, the Slow Down the song. No, I'm glad I don't know, actually. Oh, okay. no. Oh, no. By the way, speed it up, for the love of God. Please yeah. don't slow it down. <laughs> So, uh, what I've been watching this week, uh, much to the detriment of everyone in my Twitter mentions who would like me to watch (laughs) Indian matchmaking, I'm sorry, I will get to it, (laughs) maybe, Um, I've been re-watching The O.C., 
on HBO Max. Oh, wow. Strong choice. How's that going for you? Great. I mean, first of all, not to sound like a promo because I don't think they've paid us, but HBO Max is truly that girl. Every time. Like she the, never the, fails. The, I'm always shocked that they have a movie I want to see on it. Yep. Let me also shout out something while you're talking about HBO Max, which I do love. Peacock's movie selection is nonsensically excellent. They're as okay. in, if you want to go really old too, when Olivia de Havilland recently turned 104 years old, I was like, oh, there are a couple of mm-hmm. movies of hers I still have yet to see. And they are weirdly on Peacock and nowhere else. Hold Back the Dawn, 1941. What's going on there, <laughs> Peacock? Anyway, go ahead, Ira. They mentioned those movies specifically in the 30 Rock reunion. Like, uh, that, reunion that reunion was just a list of everything on Peacock. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've been rewatching The O.C., and let me tell you that it is, one, still excellent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two, holds up extremely well, is really funny. The acting in it is pretty great, too. Misha Barton is there. But, you know, <laughs> that, 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 that is one of those lightning in a bottle moments where someone who can't really act is given a role that works perfectly for them, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Mm-hmm. No, and by the way, perfectly acceptable to be a completely limited actor, and it's completely acceptable to have only one role that ever works for you, especially if it's iconic. We don't need that much more yeah. from every actor. Yeah, look at Alexa Demi. I love her for what she does, and that's right. it. <laughs> and my note about the OC is that I was tweeting out that I was watching it, and someone responded, it's my favorite guilty pleasure show. And I just really hate when people use that word to talk about shows like the OC or even like a Real Housewives or like something that you enjoy but you're supposed to feel bad about it because it's you have to think why do they feel bad about it? Oh, yeah. You know? No, I was going to say like Desperate Housewives comes to mind in that conversation and I think what it is is women having inner lives. I mean, and, yeah. and, and us enjoying them. I usually think it has something to do with women in prominent roles. I mean, it's a reason why George Cukor, um, his films were called women's pictures, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's things that are for the entertainment of women and then in turn um, faggots are <laughs> seen as less than and not um, prestige enough. And you also have to think about what gets called prestige television as well. Mm-hmm. And those things are never called guilty pleasures. I, I would say that a prestige television show that would be the guiltiest of pleasures by most people's criteria would be something like Breaking Bad. <laughs> but those never get called that, yeah. you know? And I think that the show is well-written, it's smart, and now that we are people who are television writers, you can see that it is adults like us who write these shows and mm-hmm. they're obviously smart people making smart references and really trying to say something about the high school experience. Mm-hmm. And I just think that we do a disservice to a lot of the things that we watch by calling them guilty pleasures because that from the outset makes you feel like you were ashamed of talking about what you're watching. You know, It expresses it to other people, but it also is a knock to yourself emotionally and it makes you feel bad for enjoying something that you enjoy uh someone responded to me that the only thing they've been calling a guilty pleasure lately is when you're watching something by someone that you know is a piece of shit that, mm-hmm. which that's a good definition yeah my yeah. guilty pleasure is me watching blue jasmine <laughs> precisely yeah, yeah or me my... watching any spike lee movie i'm like fuck really <laughs> my guilty pleasure is 
men. You know what I mean? It's that same yeah. thing of, mm. uh, look, I've done all the homework. I should not like this half of the human species, and yet here I am. Like, I'm oriented to them, in fact. Ira, you're right. I'd never considered that, but I'm realizing now it's because there's some type of shame in enjoying content that doesn't, like, abstract wholly from life, which I don't get, mm -hmm. because I love entertainment like the mundane there's a beauty in that there's a beauty in the mundane there's a beauty in frivolous like there's a beauty in that that i enjoy watching and it feels like you're hanging out with them like i like to watch life unfold what can i say <laughs> what most people define as a guilty pleasure is something you can't call yourself smart for watching yes Truly, or that's you know it is. an oxygen a bravo show an e-show mm -hmm. leave me alone i just want to watch some people throw drinks on each other i want to watch that which by the way implies that the only non-guilty TV watching is something you can congratulate yourself for watching, in which case that's even more egotistical. And, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it ends up being television mostly from men. Totally. White men. Yeah. Truly. Do you know how many times I've tried to make it through Ozark? I can't do it. <laughs> Game of Thrones? Right. Struggling. Like it's, it's TV shows that men don't have to strain to watch. Yeah. Imagine <sighs> with all the criteria of calling like a Desperate Housewives, the OC... Guilty Pleasures and not calling Game of Thrones one. <laughs> right? Yeah. You watched right. how many seasons and how many storylines and none of them wrapped up at the end? That soap opera? Come on. <laughs> that should be called Guilty Pleasure, if anything, except it is a masculine show by yeah. nature and its viewership is also heavily leaning towards men. So it is never considered something that is shameful for being watched. Yeah, bitch, that is a medieval telenovela. Like, get over it. <laughs> anyway, that's all I have to say about the OC. I am actually really enjoying it. And with each episode, I'm getting pulled in and having the same emotional reactions I had when I was in high school. And um, I didn't expect that to happen. Um, that show famously debuted in the summer, right before my senior year. Um, that was one of those Fox shows that debuted seven episodes in the summer so that when we came back to school, people would already be talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in math class, uh, Mr. Brightish's math class, mm -hmm. and the like football players were talking about the OC. Mm -hmm. And this is at my straight all-boys Jesuit high school in Milwaukee. And I was <laughs> like, oh, I have something to talk to y'all about. And we literally <laughs> talked about the OC every fucking week. <laughs> wow, congrats. Yeah. Wow, the common thread. Yeah. I talked about it every week with Shay McNamara, the basketball player I had a crush on. Anyway. McNamara uh, is, <laughs> is such a high school basketball player last name that's insane. I know. Wait, it seems like a character on the he, OC. Yeah. Right? He was tall, played football and basketball, and was like one of the white boys who like the black kids like. I know. Okay, I have one, yeah. one little assignment for you guys that I just thought of because this is reminding me how important it is right now, especially during the pandemic, for us to kind of coddle that inner child and watching the OC and relating and going back to what it felt like to be in high school. I bought myself a caboodles. <laughs> oh. The other day. Because oh, my God. I know, I know, because I always wanted one, and I, uh, my mom had one, and I, she was just like, I'm not buying you that, you know, poor mom things. And I finally got myself one, and I feel amazing, and I just want you guys to find the thing that you wanted as a child that you never received and go buy that shit and just pretend to be seven for a little bit. It feels really good. Oh, my God. Do you know what? I'm going to get a skip it. I never had one of there those, you and go. I always a wanted it. it growing up. Yeah, I love skip it. I miss when all oh. commercials, especially for 
children were cokey. Like I can, yes. I can, I can hear the cocaine that went into it. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bucket. Oh please, the, Mr. The, Bucket. The way that the way those the way those those kids would scream for Mr. Bucket, it was like they were rolling. <laughs> Every time a ball pops out of his mouth, it's like another hit of Molly. <laughs> and by the way, I just want to reiterate, he was a bucket. Like it's a really shocking yeah. thing to want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the balls, the balls were out of my mouth. The Mr. Bucket. <laughs> <laughs> When we're back, Avinatu <laughs> uh, and Anne join us. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now... Is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. <laughs> I am so excited to, first of all, welcome Ann Friedman to the podcast. Hello. Yes. This is your first time on Keep It. I'm honestly thrilled. Honestly. This is the most excited <laughs> I've been to be on Zoom in weeks. <laughs> and then we have Aminatu So, who has been on Keep It twice before as a co-host. Now you're here as a guest. It's nice to be back. It's nice to be back. Though I don't believe we have ever mixed before. You were, I guess, what's weird is I guess you were replacing me on the podcast at the time. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Every <laughs> so. time you've gone on vacation with no notice and you've like refused to fill me in what I'm supposed to do. I failed at the trivia. It's it's hard to step into your shoes. You know what I mean? So that's me now. Wow. I'll fill you in on Angelica Houston tidbits next time. I'm sorry to stick you out there with no help. <laughs> She has a really great memoir. It's a great memoir. Oh, yes. Two memoirs. Yes. A story lately told. I recommend it. And a great Vulture interview uh, about cocaine. Correct. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we are here to talk about how you two went from a hot podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, to your very own book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, which is 
such a moving book. While I was reading it, I literally kept texting my best friend about it. And I was texting him screenshots and saying, you need to read this. You need to read this. So you have accomplished, I think, what you set out to do. I sent him um, truly the opening where you just talk about how behind every meet cute, there's an emotional origin story, one that answers a deeper question, not how did you two meet, but why did you become so deeply embedded in each other's lives? And he responded, this book is my kind of dramatic. And I said, <laughs> it, it is definitely us being dramatic at 3 a.m. Uh, at a warehouse party with each other. <laughs> um, so how did you two tap into friendship for this book in such an exciting way that I don't think I've ever read about it. Thank you for identifying our drama. No one has effectively <laughs> called us out for how truly dramatic it is that we wrote a whole book about our friendship, thoroughly examining all of these little moments. So I just need to say thank you for that upfront. I know. I feel seen. I feel seen. I feel understood. I feel dragged. It's like all of the feelings are there. Like, it's beautiful. Thank you. Right. And and gosh, now I like forget the question. Okay. Um, <laughs> what and how, how did you, yes, just like how did you tap into this and what made you like realize that there was a need for even writing about friendship? Because I didn't know there was a need, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is what I need. I think at various points of our friendship, we have both felt kind of alone in some of our struggles. It really seemed in real time that it might have been easier if we had an example of someone else's story of how they worked through some of these issues in a friendship. And, you know, an earlier version of this book was a little bit more about the meet cute, a little bit more the kind of fun montage, the getting to know you, and then 50% the kind of staying close to each other and the harder stuff. And as we worked it over and reworked it, we realized that the kind of hard stuff was what we were most interested in talking about because it was what we had most needed at various points of our friendship. First of all, just reading the blurb to this book was thrilling because as Ira said, I was surprised how little I had thought about I, like, for instance, I'm somebody who's, like, rarely in a romantic relationship and really values my friendships, and yet I don't feel like I've ever really thought of them as critically as I should have, which brought me to realizing how few things, like movies, TV shows, whatever, are just about a single adult friendship. It's not about a group of friends or a romantic relationship. And I was wondering, did this process make you seek out representations of adult friendship elsewhere and which ones you just have enjoyed watching? Yeah, you know, I think that, at the core of this book is the fact that we're all getting older. Um, friendship is very cute when you're young and people have a lot of cute words for talking about it when you're young. We have called each other best friend, bestie, you know, and I have zero regrets. But the truth is that like, you know, we are mid thirties, like pushing past that. And a lot of the other stuff of life, like the stuff of like work life balance is really starting to threaten a lot of how you feel about your friendships really. And we were really trying to find a vocabulary that was a little more precise because, you know, friend is the most nebulous word in the world. It's like a friend is someone that you like see on Facebook and you never see them again. And it's also someone that you would die for, you know, and one word contains uh, <laughs> like everything in the gap there. And so we really wanted to write about this kind of adult friendship that you have that is really rooted in the future. It's secure. It is mature. And 
also, you know, like we are grownups who are trying to say that our friends are really at the center of our lives. And what does that mean for how we're going to organize the rest of our lives moving forward? And so it's interesting hearing you say, you know, that like friendship is really important to you and you had not critically thought about it because I feel challenged in that way all the time. And I think that that's not an accident. It's because we really like the social scripts from a really early age is that friendship is just supposed to be easy. Some people are good at making friends. Some people are bad at making friends. You know, like some people are dramatic. Some people are not. And somehow it just all shakes out. But the truth is that like if you're going to have any kind of lasting relationship, whether it's a work partnership or it's a friendship or it's a romantic relationship, you're putting in work. We just do not have a good vocabulary for how we talk about the work of friendship. Mm. And to your question about culture and like where we've seen this kind of complex friendship put front and center, you know, there are some examples in literature, novels that like we have felt seen by as we think about difficulties in our friendship. But for me, the number one sort of film representation is this latest season of Insecure, where um, Issa Mm. and Molly's Mm -hmm. friendship is um, really the kind of primary dramatic arc. And What I love about it is we are deep enough into that show now that we have all of this backstory for them. You know, it's almost like like we understand what the good old days montage looks like. And so to see the way that this friendship that we as viewers and they as characters were so secure in watching the the kind of seemingly minor ways that it crumbled um, or, you know, maybe it's still crumbling. I don't know. Cliffhanger. Um, <laughs> we th- That felt very true to our experience, that there was not one big blowout incident, just the series of continually missing each other when you're trying to connect. So that to me, I, wa- I you know, I watched that after we finished this book, of course, and was just like, yes, pause, yes, yes, over and over. Because seriously, it's like, I mean, in terms of movies... It's like Thelma and Louise. And then I shouldn't have to go, like, I love you, man, comes up. Like, we totally have <laughs> left an entire genre, I believe, out on the table. for people. I hope this vaults people into thinking about it more. Also, it's just easier to dissect these things, I feel like, if you are women or from the LGBTQ plus community, uh, particularly your chapter where you talk about chosen family. Um, And I loved how you talk about the origins of the phrase chosen family too. And, you know, we use that as shorthand all the time. You know, like RuPaul says, like, we as a family get to choose our podcast hosts. Um, (laughs) But um, there, there really is something tied into how women and queer people just have more of an openness emotionally and intimately with one another um, in ways that society keeps straight men, for example, um, of being able to interact with one another, even the divide between straight men and women, you know, like when Harry met Sally, you know, like you can never have a piece of culture about a guy and a girl who's a best friend without thinking, well, they're about to get together in the end. It's just this really intense piece of, I think, just humanity that I really loved being opened up to, you know? Like, I would always feel dramatic for, like, feeling like we're having the same conversations with my best friend, you know? Like, actually dissecting our friendship, like, moments where you talk about when we met, like, challenging each other on um, things we don't like the other one does. Um, And it starts to feel like a relationship, to so many other people, um, but that really isn't the case. It is just sad to see um, how friendships are sort of um, 
outlawed or have been outlawed uh, <laughs> historically amongst people. And I loved how you dove into that. Um, I want to ask specifically, too, about some of the chapters deal with an interracial friendship, too. That's something that I deal with with two of my best friends, you know? What was going through your mind as you're writing this and being like, this is not just a book about friendship, you know, this is also like a book on how black and white people can be best friends with each other, but it's also not the color of friendship, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ira, I'm really looking forward to your book, The Color of Friendship, um, the Ira Madison story. (laughs) I can't... I'm pre-ordering right now. I can't wait. I'm pre-ordering it. You know, like, it's so funny, like, part of the full scam of racism is actually this. It's that, and I wish that white people would really hone into the fact that because of racism, we just cannot have nice things and we cannot have like relationships that are equal when you're a black person and a white person in a friendship. And so, you know, part of the the story of the breakdown that Anne and I have is that really early on in our friendship, the reason that we were attracted to each other to be friends in the first place is that we had really internalized that we were the same person. This concept that um, this linguist uh, Deborah Tannen writes about the story of sameness. And it's funny. It's like, we're, we're just like, yes, we like the same music. We like the same TV shows. We like, you know, like we are attracted to each other on this very superficial, we have the same interest things. And, you know, and that perpetrates each other like over years and years in our friendship. But it's so insane to me that that was something that, you know, we thought was true. I'm like, it's we could not be two more different humans. Like we we grew up tens of thousands of miles apart from each other. We like literally come from different backgrounds. We literally come from different races. But this is true in all attraction, right? Whether you meet someone as your romantic partner, you meet someone as a friend or whatever, you really want to believe that like, oh, yeah, I'm just me. I'm just myself. I'm not to like how I am in the world. And then Anne is just Anne. And that's how we're going to like go through life. And uh, that is not how America works. <laughs> and it's just like very, very, very painful then to realize that you're having two completely different conversations. Because like as we write, race is not something that um, our relationship can be exempt from because we live in America. Like race will always be part of how we experience each other, right? So it's like there is no amount of Anne being a good person or woke or whatever that is going to make up for the fact that we just are steeped in anti-black racism in this country. And I think that for us for a really long time, you know, we, we are like very good about talking about that kind of stuff as it happens in the world, you know, but we had not been good about talking about race as it happens inside our own friendship. And that's because we were processing it in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And to your question about why isn't this a separate book, like, called The Color of Friendship. I mean, I think for us, you know, the amount of reflection that we did on our friendship, you know, the whole decade's worth of it, it became really undeniable what a role race had played in a lot of the moments when we were missing each other. And so to somehow separate that out and say, like, that's a different book or a different thing is just not true to the experience of our friendship. And I I think is not true to the experience of a lot of friendships. You know, we also didn't want to normalize this idea that, all friendships are between people of the same race, which is kind of what you're doing if you're pulling, you know, all discussion of how race affects friendship out and into some separate book. And so, you know, I don't think our chapter is by any means definitive. And I would still love to pre-order your book, The Color of Friendship. I think that there <laughs> is like such a dearth of scholarship and of even like art about this dynamic that I am 
thrilled if anyone wants to take on this topic in a more meaningful way. Yes. Different title, though, because that's that <laughs> Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, you I, back I, I were getting so the sued by title. the Disney Corporation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, it could just be like all the colors of friendship. <laughs> you both are in the unique position also of having to perform friendship, as in it's something people tuned in to hear about. You, you quote unquote, gave life to other people through just having this relationship. And I think that would just inevitably put a strain on two people who genuinely do know each other. Can you talk about how the performance changed how you interacted, changed how you saw one another. Yeah, you know, I mean, we, Anne and I have worked together now at this point for six years, six, um, we've done our podcast for six years and we've had other collaborations for, um, you know, a little longer than that. And I think that this is a dynamic that is true probably for the two of you as well of (laughs) there is the friendship that other people absorb just by seeing you work as public people. And then there is also just the reality of what your friendship is like in the private moments. Right. And so there's a reason that we're not constantly sharing everything that's happening in private. It's because it's literally private and we're all professionals who show up to do our podcasts. And not every friend pair is a is a pair that um, you know hosts a podcast or works together. But I do think that this question of how are other people experiencing your friendship versus how are the two of you inside of your friendship is something that is very, very, very relatable for a lot of people. And social media plays such a huge role in that conversation. And also just like the fact that for Anne and I, we are two people where we always say that we're feelings idiots because it's very true. It takes us just like a really long time to process what's going on. (laughs) And so much of the process of writing this book was realizing that we had had years of not having really... um, you know, robust conversations about what was happening in the privacy of our friendship. The the amount of things that we were talking about had just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's always something that you should be really attentive to. And for us, it was, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, like this does not feel good. Yeah, it's like the difference between looking outward, you know, discussing politics or pop culture on the podcast versus looking inward and really being fully Um, vulnerable with each other about what was happening in our personal lives. Like those two things are very different. And I think there was a time in our friendship where it was easy to show up and do the outward looking thing, but very hard to do the inward looking thing. And that's really the divide we're writing about. If this were a television episode, I feel like you two would be like the metaphor recall um episode where lewis and i are just asking this question oh, about right. yes. ourselves you know i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm really mad at a particular friend of mine who i have to shall we say perform with and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but that is true you know like what i feel like i really connected to in the book as well you know this idea that um Yes, since January 2018, obviously, people have had a perception of what Lewis and I's friendship is, you know? And um, that changes between us off the podcast all the time. But you come in and you perform something, and there's just this idea of um, modern performativeness, you know? Uh, we, We talk about celebrities and, you know, like, the way they perform reality for people. Uh, And it's interesting now to see that we're in an era where we as regular people just sort of perform ourselves for the consumption of other people. And sometimes they have ideas about what we're performing um, or they may expect certain things from you that you don't want to share. And, you know, were were there, obviously, there were moments um, that you 
didn't put in the book. Um, and, you know, I'm just wondering, um, how do you decide what goes into the book? How, what are the conversations you're having where you're like, mm, this might be apt, but is too personal. We're going here, et cetera. Like, what do you not want to share? It's so funny hearing you say that thing about performing because I'm like, all I can think of, I'm like, yes, you are performing being a professional. Like, we have, <laughs> like, this is, you know, I'm like, this is work. Like, who is going to show up at work and be like, I fucking hate my coworker. I'm going to shit on them on the podcast. Like, I was like, we're, you know, like, people are getting paid. Like, there, there are things to do. We all have obligations. And I think that for a long time, Anne and I were not able to talk about the projection, you know, that the, the audience and that everyone else has onto your relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. And, you know, and I think that probably the overwhelming reason is that people think that if you work with your friends, it's just the friendship is going to collapse or, you know, or there's some sort of like, uh, you know, rooting for like something not good to happen. And I think that it's also like a very, um, I would not say that it's a modern problem, but it is definitely a problem that more and more we are hearing people talk about this, just this idea of like, I'm just doing my job, but also people think that my whole life is on the table for, um, up for consumption mm -hmm. and that, you know, like that's tough. Like to your question about how we decided things that we were going to put on in the book, like a couple of people have like really given us the feedback of like, Oh yeah, this is really brave or it's super vulnerable or whatever. And I was like, you know, maybe it is, but the truth is that for us, it's, these are all conversations that are resolved. You know, we never share mm -hmm. things yes. that are not like completely <laughs> processed, dead, buried. There's not a way for any of us to feel some type of way about the things that we shared because we have been processing it for years. Mm -hmm. And I think too that like, you know, we realize that we are sharing in service really of illustrating the points that we were talking about mm -hmm. because back to the point of like, there's just not a lot of these narratives. And so for us to tell this story successfully, we have to do that. But, you know, like part of the story for us is that we went to therapy together. So mm -hmm. I think that gives you a very good barometer of what you can and cannot talk about <laughs> publicly in general. Yes. Very Kyle Richards and Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> very much like, you know, processed and not painful. So Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to yeah. say it's like Will and Jada at the red table. Like this was four years ago. <laughs> was literally about to say that, you know, that idea that what you're talking about at the table Will and Jada have already dealt with that, you know? And it's the performance of we're sitting down and we're talking about it. And the internet is like, oh my God, these revelations, we're finding out this shit. It's like, they've talked about this ad nauseum before. What you are getting at the red table is what they have filtered through their fights and conversations and therapy to now share with you. Yeah, the recap. Which one of you would be the one coming to the red table? Mm, good, that's a good question. <laughs> there's There's been different moments since we started Keep It where either one of us could have been at the red table. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Yes. And when we're, when we're ready to share those moments. <laughs> I would say I've been accused of by other friends of thriving on confrontational energy, so I think I'd probably be bringing someone to the red table and then if the tables would be turned on me. That's what I think would happen. Yes. Yeah. One day, Lewis and I will share Mexico City. <laughs> okay, yeah, stop. Fourth of July. Stop, stop, stop. stop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm kidding, but no, um... One last thing I want to ask you about, Amina, um, is just not about the book. I want to let people know that, one, you are a mentor to me, to be honest. Hi, uh, And it's so interesting when you talk about, like, um, in the beginning, you know, helping Anne, um, 
you know, get that job that she wanted, you know, and the, the idea that like you were asking for like a signing bonus and like a moving bonus and like a hundred K seemed like so much to you at the time, you know? Um, but you were really just sort of like being in there with her and helping her go after something. And I have just always thought that you've always been a great friend who always gives great advice, career advice. Um, you're a great oh, connector of people. And your skincare advice is the bomb. By the way, I just want to say my last plea is this seems so obvious, but this book better turn into a movie. It just needs to literally be a movie that I see. So I'm very like, you know, I don't know if you've thought about the first 10 minutes of Bridesmaids recently where it's just Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph kind of hanging out. And then eventually the movie gets around and they're so like the, their friendship. But like, that's a whole movie I wanted. I, I was missing mm. that when I watched that movie. And so I hope this turns into it. That's a friendship movie. Yes. That then devolves into something else. Yeah. But uh, who, Lewis, who would you have play them? Oh, gosh. Well, that's such an interesting... Well, I'm sure you guys have ideas about this. Who would you like to play you? I mean, I do not I have either. any ideas about this. I love that you think that this is where my, my mind goes. <laughs> I am like, I am worried about lunch. Like, that's <laughs> it. That is it. You know? And who is going to play you? Yeah, exactly. Who is? I don't know. I am really like... I'm going to think about this for you, and you should think about this for me. Will and Jada. Oh Will and Jada God. can play us. They are such good actors. They are such good actors, as we found yeah. out on the Red Table recently. Um, that's it. We got this. And you've got kind of a, like, Kirsten Stewart vibe. Wow. High compliment. Thank you. Mm, I would like that. Yeah. I feel like if yeah. I got my hair swoop bigger, you know, maybe we could see more resemblance there or something. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know who has the cheekbones to play Aminatu so. It's unclear to me. I'm going to have to think about this. Wow, she's going to have to go to acting school. I love this for myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was like where no one else could do. I wish I had more of an instinct immediately because I do believe casting is the gay superpower, but I oh, this only occurred mm. to me just now, so I'll email you separately. Please do. Please Lewis do. Lewis and I will play ourselves. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You're going to play the, we'll play the podcast hosts who are writing a competing uh, friendship book? Absolutely. We're <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. Yes. <laughs> this is like a joke, but I am just dying to see more in this realm of like a romance story that is about people who are not romantic partners. I want to see it everywhere. I want to see it on TV. I want to see it in movies. I want more people to write about their friendships because... You know, the, the thing that we realized when we were writing our book is that everyone just has their own way of how they're handling friendship and they're just whispering about it. And I'm so ready for everyone to just shout through the rooftops of like, this is how we're repairing the fucked up shit in our friendship. This is how we show each other that we care about each other. This is this is what my friend means to me. Like, I want that energy like every single day. Right. And not as a setup to a romantic relationship, but like the whole plot, like the whole arc being about friendship. Mm. Yes. Yes. I mean, I've been hoping Lewis and I will get married at the end of the podcast. But, oh, I know. Right. You know. Your long game is very extreme. Yeah. It's been a long very, time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meryl Streep will uh, officiate. Oh. <laughs> wow. Uh, Amina and thank you so much for being here. A joy. An honor. Truly. You are both a joy. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Come back. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, 
you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Last Friday, Mickey Blanco took to social media to air their frustrations over their collaboration with Tiana Taylor on the track WTP, which of course means Work This Pussy, <laughs> which was a single off Tiana's KTSE album, executive produced by Kanye V. West. Ugh. In a statement to Instagram, Mickey claimed to have not received any payments from Universal Music Group who produced the album, for their work on the track. Mickey, by the way, also goes by um, she and they pronouns if we accidentally switch back and forth um, throughout the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mickey apparently even needed to enlist the help of lawyers to get a writing credit. And the original post says, the reason I've gone public with this is not to badmouth Tiana Taylor, but her entire team and Universal have treated me with so much disrespect. They have treated me bad, y'all. Really bad. I hate doing this on social media, but I have had it. And ask fans not to stream Work This Pussy. <laughs> um, and I'll tell my parents, too, please don't stream. <laughs> I just want to, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I loved that song, and I specifically remember New Orleans' Southern Decadence of 2018 was around when that song was such a big moment for my friends and I, and I, we like we kept playing it the entire fucking weekend, and it has the clip from Paris is Burning in it, mm -hmm. uh, I Want to Be a Household Product. <laughs> uh, I love that part. Paris is Burning still maybe has to be one of the top five most quotable movies of all time. They, there's not a spare moment of dialogue that isn't sensational. If we haven't Truly. hammered it into your skull to rewatch this movie, definitely find Paris is Burning. You will not regret it. Yes, and add it to the keep it drinking game, for sure. We talk about Paris is <laughs> Burning every few weeks. So I was disappointed when Tiana, who I normally stand, posted a response saying, all of it falls on Kanye because he put Mickey on the song. I had no clue... And then misgenders Mickey by saying he mm. uh, was on the song until they played it for me the day before my album release party. Though I appreciate and love what Mickey contributed to the song, I originally replaced Mickey with my personal choice, Deshaun <laughs> Wesley, uh, who we all know as the MC from Legendary. Yep. For you to email my mom and my team, who are all part of the LGBTQ community, saying if Universal and good music don't pay you. You are going to make it a PR nightmare is whack. And my response is, is it whack? Not at all. Mickey just <laughs> wants to be paid. What? <laughs> Run me my money. Bitch better have my money. It doesn't make any sense. What? If you have not been paid for two years, tweeting about it, <laughs> yes. We, we tweet... Uh, when we are inconvenienced by airlines. You think I'm not going to tweet <laughs> yeah. about um, some royalties and um, being paid for a fucking song that I'm featured on? My credit... 
for people who don't know, the way it kind of works in the industry is we have like net 30, net 60, net 90, where like we are, we don't get paid every two weeks. We get paid whenever the fuck the people who pay us decide they want to pay us within a certain limit. There is no net two years. There is no anything like that. Like if you are owed money, you need to cause an uproar about it or you're not going to get paid. Like everything Mickey did is understandable and warranted. And unfortunately, when Tiana was called out for using um, the pronouns of he, him for Mickey, she responded saying that she was unaware Mickey is trans. And the last time they met, she wasn't transitioning and used he, him pronouns. That's your response. That's boo-boo. For someone who uses the ballroom community and talks about your entire team is from the LGBTQ plus community, that's your response. Right. That's hella rude. And it would have been very simple to just say, I'm sorry, I didn't know, and redo that. Also, it would have been very easy to just be like, you're right, um, let me talk to my team. But instead, there were tweets from her talking about like, Mickey's just looking for a pandemic coin. Like, yeah, we all are. <laughs> Bitch. And saying, like, my pregnant ass is not bothering anybody. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. Well, it's also that thing that I know my biggest red flag is when someone goes, well, I have family who's also gay. My plumber is gay. My contract is... F- shut the fuck <laughs> up. Like, that doesn't make me want to talk to you or that you are allowed to keep making this conversation. And I'm just happy I have a reason to actually dislike Tiana Taylor now because something about her has always felt disingenuous and I'm just happy that I have a reason to dislike Tiana Taylor now. Well, this is also the second time that she's been in a controversy like this because if you recall, Azalea Banks was tweeting at her about um, stealing the choreography for the Fade music video, which she did with Kanye, uh, which, what is an Azealia involved in? The same. Uh, this was she week? and Kanye. She uh, and Kanye. Because, I mean, when Kanye was tweeting this week about Shia LaBeouf supposed to be in the Yeezy Gap ad and then didn't show up, I said, Shia is cap. Uh, <laughs> she started <laughs> tweeting that he has a skinny dick. What is with her? And the sex was bad. Didn't need to know I needed to hear about Shia LaBeouf's dick last night. Oh. Azealia Banks, I've never seen someone enjoy a resting amount of chaos so much. There always has to be a mania in the room when she uh, is, enters the picture. The, the Rita Repulsa of hip-hop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... When Tiana did Kanye's Fade video, we all remember that amazing video just like of her dancing. Right. Uh, And then there was also a VMA performance. Azealia pointed out that she did not give credit um, to Matthew Pastorisa, um, who choreographed um, Azealia's Anna Wintour video, saying that the choreo was supposed to be originally for Beyonce, didn't get used, and then Kanye had her use it for part of the video without crediting him. And Tiana's response to that was that, um, one, it was Kanye's fault, uh, and said that since Kanye is a spontaneous creative, no one knew when the fade video was going to drop. Therefore, no one involved in the music video was credited or compensated, not even her. That makes shit okay? (laughs) Girl. Nothing about having a, I'm sorry to use this word again, chaotic supervisor, creator, producer involved means people shouldn't be paid on time. That's a very strange 
<laughs> metaphor <laughs> to draw out. Yeah. Uh, this is all so bad. It's all so bad. It is not good music. It is bad music. This is, not, <laughs> this is so miserable. Everything about uh. it is shaky on shaky foundation. And I. it's really unfortunate because I know that this is probably something that Mickey experienced when entering this uh this partnership is collaboration. The same thing Tiana Taylor is having to do. We as queer people and black people are constantly having to make sacrifices about who we work with because they're a bigger name because we need to try and get our foot in the fucking door. And oftentimes that comes at the cost of not being treated well with our creative endeavors and also not being paid in a prompt manner. So my heart actually goes out to Tiana Taylor as well because she's getting mm. finessed by Kanye yeah. West. It's bad from the top down. Yeah, and you know, um, I felt for her when um, the album... KTS even came out because mm -hmm. she's pretty much disowned that album because Kanye was involved with the production of it. It was one of the albums that he produced when he was doing his Wyoming shit. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> and um, just really says it wasn't what she wanted, you know? And yeah. here are instances of him shitty behavior towards a black woman in the industry, um, which yep. is not shocking. Um, and so I feel for her as well. But then don't, in turn, turn that around and... Um, use the fact that you've been used to use another person. Agree. Also, I have a question. How many people don't know that somebody has been added to a track right before it comes out or whatever? I thought that was a very interesting part of the whole story. Yeah, well, the way it'll work is like he'll, Kanye will have had produced the track and then Tiana put down her part and then there's a hole. There was like a second verse and it'll get sent out to a lot of other people and whoever hops on it, hops on it and then if they like, they pick what they like and that's who gets to feature on it. Oftentimes it can be that way with recording with strangers. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you know, yeah, that's how that ended up. The music industry yeah. is stupid in that way. She, but, she might have, you know, very well thought that she picked Deshaun Wesley. But yeah. we all know Kanye West who will, at the drop of a hat, change things right before they're supposed to be released. We're going to put a moratorium on talking about Girl. this nigga on the podcast. This to nigga, be honest. bro. Um, we're going to do that again. <laughs> but his tweets the other night were very reminiscent of his tweets prior to Life of Pablo. Very mm -hmm. erratic. Um, th this is also before he went to hospital to see a doctor and got help. Yeah. Um, but I remember when Life of Pablo came out, he was constantly changing the song Wolves, adding things whatsoever. So I'm not shocked that Tiana probably had no knowledge of exactly what the final format of this album was when it dropped, you know? Yeah. Um, and I suspect the same thing will be happening this week. Uh, to another black woman that Kanye is screwing over, because I would be remiss <laughs> if I did not point out that his new album coming out um, has the song New Body on it, which has been leaked before and oh. fans have been clamoring for it. It even went viral on TikTok because of Nicki Minaj's verse on it. Uh, and because that is secular music now, quote-unquote secular music, uh, <laughs> Nikki's verse will not be on the record when the official version is released. That's the only reason people wanted that damn song. That's it. And I mean, it's like this every time... Okay, there's a lot of things wrong with the Kanye situation, but the very first thing that I want to point out is that all of this running for president, all of these I'm having a manic episode in a very public way, is again conveniently happening weeks before your fucking album is dropping. Like, we smell the bullshit every time. I don't know why everyone is surprised. Like, I feel like... Yes. This, it just, the, Two things can be true at once, yeah. you know? He can be having a manic episode, but he also can be... 
a craven manipulator who is um, using the public to bolster attention for his albums. It's very unfortunate. And watching him and these videos that are coming up from his rally, it is actually mania-inducing for me. Like the, I can yes. see his heart beating quick. I can see the way he's fumbling through words. And unfortunately, at this point, I know when I see mania. Like you can sniff it from a mile away, and it's just a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, Kanye. And, you know, part of us wants to be like, you know, should we ignore this completely? Because, you know, we ignored Donald Trump, and look at what happened. Yeah. But I, I would posit that this is a completely different situation. Donald Trump is a racist white monster who other white people <laughs> realize that they could use to subjugate non-white people. And I think Kanye is too far gone for anybody to try to be using um, for any sort of political mind play. He, you know, he can't yeah. even get on the ballot in South Carolina. Um, in this <laughs> rally, another attack to Nicki Minaj saying Harriet Tubman didn't free the slaves. Like, first of all, leave Harriet Tubman's name out of your fucking mouth. To freedom! And two, <laughs> yes, Harriet Tubman took the slaves to freedom! <laughs> <laughs> exactly, bitch, exactly. Every, um, and then in that video, the clips from the rally, the, you, we saw him attacking a black woman and screaming at her for wearing a fucking mask during a pandemic. We've all been mandated to wear masks. Like, yeah. everything... Ooh, Kanye. Ooh, Kanye, sit down. I think we also all agree about him that, like, it's super cyclical. Like, in a couple of years, there'll be another round of this publicly for some reason again. And I just think, like, when I'm reading the quotes he had, at, for example, that press conference, like, when people are transcribing these things, like, do you not feel yourself just adding to what will be an inevitable another round of this? You know, it's just, I yeah. mean, like, I know somebody has to because, like, he's doing this publicly and he gets a lot of press, but it's just... It, it feels also easy how we make it just happen again. Yep. All them white people at that event too. <laughs> that's sign. That's red flag. That's sign A, exhibit A, that yeah. you need to stop talking. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> if only white people are listening, stop talking. Uh. <laughs> but and like I've talked pretty openly on this podcast about how I suffer from bipolar disorder, and I suffer is not even the right word. And learning how to cope with my bipolar disorder, I haven't had a manic episode in a long time. But when I have had bad manic episodes, I lose lucidity. I'm not able like the things I say are deliberately instig like I'm deliberately trying to instigate people. And there are things that I've done during manic episodes that I could not tell you that I did that I have dissociated myself and my body from those situations. But um, it's just terrifying to see this happening and then to see the internet make a meal out of it and to enjoy Kanye's downfall. And then also, in turn, when Kanye has a manic episode, it's pray for yay. And when someone like me or Azealia Banks has a very public manic episode, it's, oh, that's a crazy fucking bitch. Mm -hmm. There is a disconnect between how people support a very public bipolar person uh, like Kanye West and how they treat people in the rest of the black community. Um, mm -hmm. Because I, as you said, sharing your own story, you know, like he ain't the only nigga with bipolar disorder. Come on. You know? And <laughs> like... we know plenty of those people who are not assholes 24-7. True. So listen, I want to light a candle and pray <laughs> for yay and listen to um, I Wonder off of graduation, uh, listen, listen to the good memories. Uh, but uh. I can't do this thing where we act like um, he is the only person uh, who has gone through this and he is the only time the public wants to have a conversation about mental health 
in the public, you know? And I really fucking hate it that people had Britney Spears' name trending alongside his, <laughs> referencing this shit to 2007, um, what she went through, that moment where we watched her strapped to a gurney, being carted yeah. out of her home away from her children. There are similar things in their stories and there are lessons to be learned from them but they're not the same fucking thing i know not at all and i don't love how we have speculated on both of them like britney fans right. have their own particular breed of quote-unquote trying to help and like using what appear to be facts but always seem like a jerry-built youtube video by a random fan like that's what mm -hmm. we're basing a lot of information on and and, and there mm -hmm. are some facts like <laughs> like um the conservatorship obviously like yeah there, there are things yeah. that are known but it always feels like extrapolation more than it feels like really we're helping a conversation here and that we yeah. know exactly what's going on unfortunately a lot of people sound like you know they are part of b anon yeah <laughs> 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 I want to hear Isaiah Washington join that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is keep it keep it okay mine's a little small keep it and it's actually sad so i'll just go <sighs> <laughs> sorry allow me to laugh hysterically at what you just said go ahead <laughs> well you're gonna feel awful for what i'm about to say okay okay, okay no i'm kidding i'm kidding um so of course a couple days ago about five days ago now on july 17th we lost john lewis mm -hmm. which was very very difficult for all of us and we're already in the middle of processing a fucking million things right now so this was very painful. My keep it this week goes to white mourners who all of a sudden give a fuck about John Lewis and are very quick to tweet RIP John Lewis. And it's the same white people or the same white senators, congressmen, Congress people who didn't give a fuck about supporting John Lewis when he was trying to get Voting Rights Act passed when he was alive. John Lewis has devoted the majority of his fucking life making sure that black people had access to the polls and was consistently shut down throughout his career. The, the voting rights acts that he got passed were demolished in the Supreme Court years and years and years after he got them passed. And it, of course, there is space for everyone to mourn. But when I can see through your mourning, if I have to constantly see your performative activism on display, I grow tired and weary. You're better off not saying anything. Like, I'm absolutely sick of it. I need it to fucking stop. I need the timeline to be some type of a semblance of peace and safety when we are mourning something that is so important to us. So just keep it. Keep it if you're a white person that has anything to say and hasn't actually shown any gratitude or support for black people in the past. I'm tired. I'm tired. So you, you don't think, for example, Marco Rubio is like an, <laughs> a, a rad ally, for example. I know. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I follow him. I have his notifications on on Twitter. I love everything that Marco Rubio has to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's the one exception to this to this rule. <laughs> Uh, fuck you, Brian Kemp, as well. Yes. From Georgia. Let us live. Posting a tribute to John Lewis when you literally stole an election <laughs> from black people. Yeah. <laughs> like, you stole your seat from a black woman. Like, honestly, fuck you. And also, specifically, like, posting a remembrance of John Lewis then becomes 
just a, a way to burnish your own reputation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it, it's clearly not doing anything on behalf of John Lewis's memory. It's you repainting yourself in another light, which is disgusting. I mean, I remember when Muhammad Ali died. You know, and everyone posting tributes to him were not the people who were supporting him when he was protesting the war. <laughs> exactly or the same people who had like islamophobic comments for him like that's just yeah girl i need to breathe they got me exhausted especially because we have an impending housing crisis we have an impending voting crisis that's about to happen so john lewis's death was the most timely thing to start these conversations and there's nothing that we can do Mm. about what's about to happen and we have all those crises and people want to talk this week about the san francisco giants kneeling Honestly. Girl, I don't have time. That's the shit we're dealing with. Um, Two things about John Lewis. One, um, I tweeted it out, but if you haven't read it, you should read March. Uh, It is a trilogy. It's a graphic novel. Um, It's about... um, his role in the civil rights movement, telling that story, um, it's it's beautifully rendered. It just looks gorgeous, and also the story is very powerful. And people should read graphic novels and comic books more, and this is one that is educational. And speaking mm-hmm. of comics, by the way, that it, it went viral, but people posting John Lewis dressed as his former self from the 60s at <laughs> Comic-Con and like that was very mm. rad I didn't know about that at the time I have a hard time paying attention to Comic-Con news can you picture me reading through that no this I could do <laughs> yeah. you mean you're not tuning in on Thursday to watch me host the New Mutants panel oh my god <laughs> again we've already talked about me sprinting out of rooms into the ba- pandemic I'm, <laughs> I'm doing a dive somersault now yeah also one other side note about John Lewis Yes, drag Marco Rubio for posting that dumb photo of Elijah Cummings and himself and not having the wherewithal to check if it's a fucking photo of John Lewis, you know, since you are a senator, bitch. (laughs) We as black people need to admit that Elijah Cummings and John Lewis look alike. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay? They look alike. Now, if you, were, if you look at photos of them when they were younger, John Lewis had more like slimmer, defined features, and Elijah Cummings um, did not look like him at all. He had more of a rounder face. They look completely different uh, when they were younger. <laughs> but we have to accept the fact that sometimes old black people start to morph into old black people, you know? And they all have that sort of like older black man face. Yes. And they look alike. Would I confuse a photo of them online if I'm a fucking senator posting a tribute to them? No, bitch. I would not do that. And you were also people who have presumably done FaceTime with both of them. So you should be more adept at being able to tell the difference between them, right? I've met Tegan and Sarah a bunch of times. How long it took me to tell the difference between them? I can do it now, but often would run into one of them and be like, hey, girl. (laughs) Also, I I do think it's important you kind of touched on this, that like sometimes two famous people become the same person. Like they converge in time. They didn't used to look alike. And then like, you know, 1984, Kate Bush and Mary Steenburgen. I can't believe we let them know. both just go on looking like the same people. It's a very, cra- you know, but um, you, like- that's what you're saying. They didn't used to, it's, it's like um, Will Ferrell and the guy from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like now yeah. they look mm-hmm. a lot alike, you know. Anthony Kiedis? No, not Anthony Kiedis. The uh, Chad, I'm sorry, I forget. Chad Smith? Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. Yeah. Also Jodie Foster and Helen Hunt. Oh, that story. No, see, I don't think they look alike. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, 
Lewis, what's your keep it this week? Uh, another keep it I have to apologize for because when the Jesse Ware album came out and I said keep it to that, I was locked out of the gay community for two weeks. They didn't yeah. le- they didn't let me use the library at all. Um, <laughs> it's what you deserved. What right. did you expect? What did you expect? Well, it's about to get worse because keep it to the new Dixie Chicks album, which is probably a D plus at best. And I say that affectionately Ooh. to the to pardon me to the chicks who are used to be the Dixie Chicks. Y- yeah, you're the, using the hard D word. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Lewis, put away the noose. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. I'm sorry. You get too much ha- of this on this podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. Generally we used speaking, to pretend we were going to fire him for like a whole year. Oh, yeah. That was, that was like our bit. Yeah, you're, right. on, you're on thin, thin white ice. Okay. <laughs> My face is thin white ice. Look at this ring light. Anyway, the Dixie Chicks' first four albums, and they only had four albums before this, really are pretty flawless like i would say all together there's less than five skips on all of those albums put together like they knew the sentiment that sounded the best coming from them like the cynicism was always right the humor was always right the energy was always high this album which is their first since their album of the year winning album taking the long way it's called gaslighter is primarily about natalie main's divorce in fact in a lot of ways it feels like a natalie main solo album that emily and marty just showed up for it feels like they forgot to turn the angst of this divorce into songs. Like six of the tracks on this album to me barely have melodies and they are so strong melodically that it feels very out of step for them. I think I would be a little bit more tolerant about it if this were a transitional album between gigantic blockbusters that they're used to producing. But for the most part, it's like under clever. She doesn't really say anything about the divorce that makes me think like I need to, to even hear about this. The final track where she, it's called Set Me Free, where she basically asks him to end the divorce proceedings, let her move on with her life if he ever loved her. That I'm on board with. But for the most part, there's not enough humor in it. There's not enough, I I don't know, I don't want to say country energy, but like energy in general. I just find it kind of a slog and uncharacteristically boring of them. You know, I will say I do. I'm starting to get a recollection of memories of you having a keep it to the name Gaslighter when it was announced. Mm -hmm. So you kind of foretold that you were going to hate this album. But here's my thing with it. I was so excited. Well, that song was bad. It was. was It truly was. I was excited to have Jack Antonoff on a project with them. Like, I thought Mm -hmm. that was going to be fire. And then it seems like you said, which a word I haven't thought of in a long time, a fucking slug. Like, it was just slow (laughs) to get through, difficult, and yeah, very much so not impressed. I would give it like a two out of ten. I'm not going to lie. The um, There's one song on it called Texas Man that I think is rollicking and traditional sounding for them. Because in the mm-hmm. old days, every track on the album would sound like that. It's got a bop to it. There's some funny to it. She talks about being uh, a little more traveled than the new model that every man is looking for. Things like that. But otherwise... Yeah, I just I don't find it even that listenable, which is sad. Her voice yeah. still sounds amazing. It feels like it's 2003 when you're listening to it. But mm-hmm. I'm going to shock you, Lewis. Oh, no. And agree. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, I, 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 I actually have um, not given this uh, album more than three listens. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't really for- remember many songs from it. I do like Texas Man, uh, March March, Tights on My Boat as a concept like but i think that really just went viral as a song because of referencing tights on her boat 
etc. You know, the, like, uh, yeah, the affair. Yeah. It's a song about, uh, yeah, she's uh, she's telling, I assume, Adrian Pazdar, who's to say, that uh, he can go and marry the woman whose tights she found on his on her boat. Yeah, it's very, I know what, I know what you did last summer. I know what you did on my boat. <laughs> <laughs> Ben's son. Ben's son. <laughs> That's I how really they figured tried. out who the killer. That's how they figured out who the killer was, and I still I know. know what you did last summer. His name was Benson, and they realized it meant Ben's son. That is wow. so insane. Okay, etymology. Okay, break it down. The killer was also uh, Matthew Settle, Rufus from Gossip Girl. Oh, how cute! <gasps> who we is love, fine? We love segueing it all together here. Speaking yeah. of yeah. fine um, men. <laughs> yes. Um, I also want to say that. Um, Pardon me for not being on my Lisa Cholodenko, but I don't care enough about the interior lives of white women um, to have known that <laughs> Natalie Maines was married to the dude from Heroes. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I didn't know. I didn't know until people started talking about it. And I was like, this is such a shocking gap in pop culture knowledge for me. I did not know they were married. Yeah, well, it, this feels like a like a... Fleetwood Mac rumors attempt but misfire like sentiment. I'm not a fan. I don't care about your divorce. Mm. There. I also, <laughs> I'm actually glad you brought up that album in particular because what makes rumors good is that there's still a bunch of perspectives on it, even though it's all about angst and fighting. Whereas mm-hmm. this, I mm. feel like I'm getting one person ranting to me on the phone about how bad things are before she even has perspective on it. That's how Girl. I felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was also just hoping maybe for a bit more anger uh, at the country yes yeah right right this is their return after being treated so horribly Mm -hmm. uh politically and also internally within their own community and i i felt none of that energy on the album it feels a bit light yeah they didn't come back did they they tried to come back there's a joke there. Yeah, they ar- they arrived i don't know if they (laughs) came back yeah Yeah, they showed up (laughs) a little bit so my keep it this week is to Joe Kennedy III. Oops. Yep. Grandson of Robert F. Kennedy, who is running against one term incumbent Ed Markey for a senator seat. Now, mm. Markey won a 2013 special election when John Kerry stepped down to become the U.S. Secretary of State under President Obama. Markey is one of the authors of the Green New Deal. Uh, mm-hmm. Which we love. Yes. True enough. Joe Kennedy is campaigning against him, which we do not love. <laughs> but the thing I'm mad about is that Playbill last week announced that they were going to hold a Broadway benefit to raise money for Joe Kennedy. And this included Sarah Bareilles, Kelly O'Hara. Andrew Barth Feldman, and composer teams, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. It was going to be a pre-taped sort of virtual concert. And people responded to them who were Broadway fans being like, hey, he's running against the co-author of The Green New Deal. Maybe you should look into who you are raising money for before you agree to do a political fundraiser just because they're a Democrat, you know? Correct. Uh, Just Mm -hmm. because they're a Democrat who... You know what? I would lick his face. <laughs> okay, you, you moved too quickly. <laughs> you into went, that. you went. Sorry, girl. sorry, 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 sorry. Clean anyway, up. back on track. Clean back up. on track. Back <laughs> on track. Um, so many of the people, once they found out, started pulling out 
uh, Pasek, Paul, um, Kelly O'Hara, they pulled out um, once they found out the T. Uh, however, Joe Kennedy's team's response said, We are heartbroken by the cyberbullying so many of our event participants were subjected to. The toxic nature of political Twitter is nothing new, but the level of vitriol Senator Markey and his supporters have unleashed during this campaign is unprecedented. Wow. If you are using the language of conservatives to talk about some people tweeting at Broadway actors that they shouldn't do a fundraiser for you, get the fuck out of here. Right. He may as well have brought up cancel culture. Right. It's disgusting. <laughs> right. He's used cyberbullying instead of cancel culture because he knew if he'd used cancel culture, that probably would have been broadcast everywhere. Trump might have even tweeted about it. But instead, it stays within the pages of Playbill and – um other smaller newspapers and really just um, Broadway Twitter, but I'm bringing it here now. Let's just talk about my favorite Kennedys. That would be Pam Shriver, the tennis player, and Maria Shriver, the legend. (laughs) And um, by the transitive property, um, Carol Radswell. (laughs) Okay, not my universe, but I understood the reference. (laughs) Also, which Kennedy did Taylor Swift date? Right, like his name was like Ronan Kennedy. Like, I don't know his name. (laughs) Yeah. Part of the whole Kennedy thing is just because um, he inherited his family trust, well, yeah. um, which includes Chevron stock uh, and ExxonMobil stock, etc. And these are all companies that have been linked to efforts to fight the Green New Deal. So basically he has stock in companies that are anti-Green New Deal. And also um, Chevron has been like donating um, millions um, to super PACs um, against Democrats for their support of the Green New Deal. So there, there are questions in a lot of people's minds of if he were to get this um, Senate seat, like would he have the Green New Deal's interest at heart or would he have the interest of people who are anti the Green New Deal? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, um, as Kamala Harris said, I think we should have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, I just think <laughs> that my keep it is to the language used in that response, calling um, people cyber bullies um, and really sort of like using conservative doublespeak uh, just because your fundraiser um, got hit with some people who didn't want to do it. Like, grow the fuck up. Also, yeah, the word unprecedented. Like, have you you run studies of people responding to Broadway stars in the past? Like, run the numbers for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know what the Broadway community actually wants? Less productions of Our Town. Sure. Right, right, right. (laughs) I don't care that Emily's done with Grover's Corners or whatever. I don't care. <laughs> but that that's what we want. Uh, we're, we're we're not that angry. No, it's a, it's a pleasant crowd. In fact, they're too supportive of one another. I always find it suspicious. All right, that's our show this week. Uh, thank you again to Aminatu So and Ann Friedman for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Keep it is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Melkonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week.
I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts.